This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And Judge slams one deep to left field. He will test the new wall, and he will hit it off the wall. And for Aaron Judge... Welcome to the new Camden yep. Yards. Because in years past, that's about 25 feet over the fence. Line down the left field line. That ball is going to be off the face of the wall. And Stan will stop it first with a two-run single off the wall. Now, I wonder if you guys feel the same way I do. I think that Stan thought that ball was out. And he stood at home plate and admired it. And that's why he only got a single out of it and not a double. Maybe he thought it was last year. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined by MLB.com national content editor, Matt Myers. Today is Thursday, May 19th, 2022. We are going to talk about who the best team in baseball might be, the Yankees or the Dodgers, or certainly other fan bases will yell at us for saying it's just the Yankees or the Dodgers. Uh, we're going to get into our three batter minimum, talk about the really interesting thing that I think is happening in Philadelphia, the impact that the DH in the National League is having on the existence of Bryce Harper, uh, talk about Jordan Alvarez still being underrated, and the pitch clock is happening in the minors, and I got to see it in person myself yesterday and it was really interesting so we want to talk about some of the numbers behind that obviously we will get into guys we should talk about more i am regretful to report that Vinny pasquantino has still not been recalled by the kansas city royals who decided to fire their hitting coach instead of i don't know calling up my man Vinny pasquantino that's a different topic for another time matt we're gonna start with who's the best team in baseball the yankees and the dodgers both have the best records right the yankees are 28 and 9 they're playing in baltimore right now the dodgers are 25 and 12 with our apologies to the Mets and to the Angels, I know they've been playing very well. Are we are we in for a very cool New York LA World Series? I guess as I say that, right? Mets, Dodgers, Yankees, Angels. I've doomed us to like Brewers, <laughs> Twins. That's like absolutely going to happen now. Um, but these are the best two teams. Don't hate on Brewers, Twins. Come on now, Mike. Yeah, You're better than that. You know, we, we should get Brewers, Astros, just because for those of us who are old enough to remember them in the opposite leagues, that would really break our brains. Well, I think any conversation of the Yankees, first and foremost, because this is at the top of mind, has to start with what's going on with them in Baltimore right now, which you heard a, a snippet of at the top of the show, because there's been all the buzz this week about the Yankees, I think, hilariously complaining about the new dimensions. I guess I'm plugging our own podcast name, the new ballpark dimensions in Oriole, costing them home runs of all teams, the Yankees to complain about ballpark dimensions, or maybe they're doing this ironically or unironically. I'm not sure which would be the proper way to refer to it here. But just 10 minutes before we start recording, Giancarlo Stanton hit a ball 114 miles per hour that went 396 feet that went off the new wall in Camden Yards that would have been a home run in Camden Yards last year and would have been a home run in 29 other parks this year. Mike, before we get deep into the Dodgers-Yankees conversation, what is your take on this latest, I don't know if controversy is the right word, maybe silliness? It's so funny. You know, we talk a lot about 29 of 30, right? If these complaints had come from any of the other 29 teams, I think I would have like had a little more uh, sympathy for it. 
But for the members of the Yankees of all teams to complain about the way a ballpark plays, given all of the, let's call them friendly home runs you've been able to get in right field, it just, it makes me laugh so much. So like the next time someone says, oh, it's a little league stadium. Well, okay. But you know, that's the stadium you have. I, I don't actually mind what they did in Camden that much because if you look at it, it hasn't actually affected that many. It's about what we guessed, right? I think I projected like 50 home runs would be lost and coming into today, not counting the one that Matt just uh, mentioned, we were at a 13 balls hit this year in Camden that would have been a home run previously. And it spread pretty easily. It looks like the Orioles would have hit seven and would have allowed five. So I guess you can say it hurt them a little bit, but it's really funny. So far, like the Yankees have only had two of those. So I don't know. <laughs> um, are the Yankees the best team in baseball? That's the bit more pertinent question here. I'm not sure I like either answer for various reasons. And I'm going to just quickly say, why is it not the Mets? Because Max Scherzer got hurt yesterday and Tyler McGill is hurt. And Taiwan Walker has been hurt. And I need to know a little bit more about what you're getting out of Scherzer and DeGrom for the rest of the year. That is that is why, for me, the Mets are not in this conversation. Yankees or Dodgers, where are you leaning? It's, it's a tough question. I mean, right now, the Yankees have a better record. The Dodgers have a better run differential. We've talked a lot about the bottom of the Yankees order being like an act, a noticeable weak spot, probably the most glaring weak spot that like any team has. Isaiah Connor flavor has actually been okay, and it's sort of like mitigated some of that. I think I'm taking the Yankees right now just because of I sort of trust their – it's crazy to say I think I trust their pitching depth, specifically bullpen, more than I trust the Dodgers. But, man, it's it's close. But I think I'm probably taking Yankees right now. I will say I've been super impressed by the way that they've played. They've exceeded my expectations, and I think it's like – it's it's pretty real for a variety of reasons. Where do where do you stand on this? I uh, th- I need a therapy session to talk through this. I think so. Let's here's here's the multiple viewpoints I have about this. The Yankees have played better than the Dodgers. Like I don't think that that's much of a question so far. But I, when I look at the teams, I think we have seen the best that the Yankees can play, and it doesn't mean it's been perfect. Like as you said, the bottom of the lineup hasn't been very good, and Ronaldo Chapman's been a little iffy. But this is like what it looks like when everything is working. And I don't think you can expect everything's going to work like this all year long. You know, someone's going to get hurt. Maybe Nestor Cortez Jr. doesn't pitch at this level all year long. And I don't think the Dodgers can say that everything has been working in the same way. You know, they've had pitching injuries, right? Like Kershaw has been hurt. The offense has been pretty good, like really good, obviously really good, right? Like Freddie Freeman's been fantastic. Mookie Betts has been great. Uh, But there's been a lot of inconsistencies. Like Justin Turner hasn't played that well. You know, Bellinger has been okay and Gavin Lux has been okay, and the bullpen has been, you know, okay. And they've missed Blake Trinan a lot, right? So when I look at it in the sense of, well, the Yankees might have nowhere to go but down, and not like badly down, but lesser. Whereas I think the Dodgers possibly could have another gear. So like that's my starting point. It's like, okay, the Dodgers haven't played to their peak abilities, and here's where they are. But I, I don't know. I look at this Dodger roster, and there's a lot of things that concern me. Like, for example, you wouldn't think Walker Bueller, who's been one of the best pitchers in baseball for the last five years, and he has a 289 ERA. And you wouldn't look at that and say, man, I'm, I'm worried there. But I'm kind of worried there. Like his four-seam fastball just does not work anymore. And he's sort of getting by with, I don't know, I don't want to say guts, but sort of guts and pitchability and his cutter. And like, that's fine. He just, he's not dominating in the way I thought he would. It's anybody's guess as to what you're going to get from Kershaw coming back. And so I do have, you know, some more concerns about them because I think you're right. The Yankee bullpen is awesome. Even if I don't trust Chapman, Michael King is just the king of dudes. He is unbelievable, right? Clay Holmes looks great. I think they will both win their divisions. I mean, if you look at it right now, they both have the best 
1-2 in Team ERA than they are 1-2 in Team OPS. They are both fantastic teams. They're both going to probably win their divisions. Had to pick one. Yankees? But I can't say I feel great about it. No, you do make a good point. This is not a critique, but there's a good chance this is almost certainly the best stretch the Yankees are going to have all year. They're, you know, 28-9, you know, they're winning right now. It could be 29-9 by the time you listeners hear this. Whereas I could see the, the Dodgers having multiple stretches this season where they win two-thirds of their games as they are right now. So I think that the, there definitely is a little bit of that aspect to it. You mentioned some of the weirdness with the Dodgers' performance. The guy that continues to stand out to me are the Dodgers, and our colleague Andrew Simon wrote a uh, piece about this earlier this week, is the weirdness of Max Muncy's season. Andrew described Max Muncy's season as Barry Bondsian, and it is in this one very specific way in that his ratio of walks to hits is basically – Right now, obviously, we're you know we're five weeks into a season. He has one and a half walks for every hit that he has, and basically the only player in baseball history who's ever done that for a full season is Barry Bonds in 2004 when he had 232 walks and 135 hits. Right now, Muncy has 29 walks, 19 hits. Muncy's a guy that actually concerns me, and I'm kind of you know because he had that elbow injury at the end of last year, and it kind of I mean I think that like he's always been kind of underrated just because he doesn't have the name on a team of just like, you know, bold face names, but he's been consistently an elite hitter for like three or four years now. He still walks a lot. He's got an incredible eye, but he's just not hitting the ball as hard. And you do wonder like how that elbow might've affected him. I don't know, but like something feels different. The hard hit rate is way down. His max exit velocity this season is like 106 miles an hour. Whereas in past years, he'd regularly hit 110 to 112 miles per hour on the high end. So like, it feels like there might be something there now that none of this is to say that like, He's not going to kind of like come out of this and maybe it's going to take him a little while of just like getting back to just finding his rhythm and everything. And he will kind of be the old Max Muncy. But between him and the fact that, you know, Bellinger has sort of recaptured some of like being good, but he's still not MVP Bellinger. So it's there's definitely some some real questions around that team. And obviously you mentioned Kershaw as well. Do you know Max Muncy has only played three innings at first base this year? And I know obviously they got Freddie Freeman to play first base, but I sort of thought he'd get in, you know, Freeman would get a day off or he'd play deep. Nope, nope. <laughs> like Freeman has somehow been underrated. Like I don't think we're talking enough about how he's, you know, it never seemed like he wanted to leave Atlanta, right? And then everything happened and he did. And he's just been fantastic with the Dodgers. It's like the exact same Freddie Freeman you always get. And I don't think that that's something um, we we notice enough. But I guess I, I guess I expelled a lot of words without giving a great answer. And I think I'm going to say the Yankees, even though I think the Dodgers will play better from here on out. Is that enough of a way of uh, giving a non-answer answer? I like to think that it is. <laughs> um, if you look at the Fangraphs odds, by the way, the uh, neither of these teams have the highest division odds, uh, playoff odds to win their division. And that's because that's the Brewers, because they play in the NL Central, which is terrible. Whereas the Dodgers have competitive teams and the Yankees have competitive teams. They are the top two teams with the World Series winning odds, right? Dodgers number one, Yankees two, and Astros number three. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll get into our three batter minimum. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. We are into our three batter minimum, three interesting topics of the week. And I really wanted to talk about the effects of the designated hitter being in the National League officially for the first time. I'm not counting 2020, as nobody should. And what that sort of means for Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper has been crushing them. He's been fantastic, right? He also hasn't played the outfield in a month since April 16th, he heard it on a throw home against the Mets and um, came out that he had a small tear in his right UCL. He's not going to be able to throw until at least mid-June at the earliest. He might not get back on the field until after the All-Star break. He might not play the outfield again all year long. And that's obviously a big blow for a team like the Phillies because if he can't play the field, that means he's got a DH. And if he's got a DH, that means Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos and Alec Boehm and Reese Hoskins guys who all have a primary position of probably DH have to play the field. Obviously, that's bad for the defense. But here's the part that's interesting to me. So Bryce Harper's been killing it, right? He's hitting 305, 361, 634 slugging, an OPS plus of 184. And if this had happened in pretty much any other full-length regular season in the history of baseball, his season might have ended on April 16th. If not for the DH, he probably would not still be playing baseball. He might have undergone Tommy John surgery for all I know, right? And I just think that that's something that's a little maybe lost in the conversation when we talk about, you know, is it good that the NL has the DH? Do you like it? Does it change the strategy? Yada, yada, yada. Um, What it's done in this case is keep one of the five or so biggest stars in the entire sport on the field and hitting home runs. And I I thought that was an interesting aspect. Like that just never comes up that much when we talk about, do you like the DH in this league or not? When you mentioned this to me when we were doing like our, our conversation, you know, prep of the show, and I hadn't even like this hadn't even crossed my mind. You know, I mean, they thought like this alone makes the DH worth it. I used to be a very much a, you know, a DH purist. I was like, I like the NL and the, the double switch and all that stuff. And there's there's definitely some aspects of that strategy that are lost. Like, like it's all a trade off, right? This is all a trade off. But most of the reasons why I was anti DH, I, 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 I shouldn't say that. I should say one of the reasons I became pro DH was just like, Pitchers were just so bad at hitting and they weren't even trying that it was just like, it was just a waste. But this is almost as good of an argument. It's like now we, we can get star players on the field more. Like that's that's what we want, right? Like the fact that we're not only getting Bryce Harper on the field, we're getting the, like the best version of Bryce Harper on the field. Like that's really cool. And I think I'm, I'm here for it, as they say. It is. Uh, it's interesting to see, though, like what it will mean, I think, for the All-Star game, which is actually not the voting starts in, well, like two weeks. It's like right after Memorial Day, usually. Right. And if you go back through voting history, fans have voted for the starting DH in the American League, but they don't vote for the DH in the National League. The manager just gets to pick a guy and throw him in the lineup. So, for example, last year, going back to Max Muncy, he was not named the starting first baseman by the fans, but he made the team. And he ended up starting and hitting second as the DH because that's where Dave Roberts put him. So for the first time, you're going to have fans voting for the starting DH in the National League and the ballots aren't out yet. So like, I don't know how it's going to be listed. I think you probably know this better than I do. I think the teams themselves get to pick like what position each guy is listed at, right? But if you look at the uh, players who had the most DH plate appearances in the National League, here's the top four. Nelson Cruz, who we all love, but he is not been very good this year. Daniel Vogelback, who's been okay. Bryce Harper's third. 
And then you have Andrew McCutcheon. And then that's kind of it. I guess Seth Beer after that. And beyond that, you've got a whole bunch of guys who are like part-time DHs, you know, Justin Turner, Marcelo Zuna. And so if this means that Bryce Harper is going to be uh, listed as the DH, he's almost certainly going to get voted in by like a huge landslide. He'll be the first ever starting DH for the National League. And then if you really want to play it out, taking him out of the outfield picture really opens things up because like you're almost certainly going to have Soto and Betts as starters, no doubt. But then it's like, well, that would probably be Harper. Now, is it Nimmo? Is it Seiya Suzuki? Is it Castellanos? Is it Ian Happ? It's too early to like seriously think about the All-Star game. But it's kind of like a fun side effect. You know, Bryce Harper could get voted in as the DH this year. Maybe if that's how it happens. <laughs> the the one the one Bryce Harper subplot I've enjoyed this year is that he has consistently been an incredible starter for his career. Like every year, like you could count on Bryce Harper being like the best hitter in April. And this year he actually got off to a really slow start for the first time in his career and had like a 780 OPS, which is like for him is a slow start. But it's actually been in May where he's just been going bananas, like an OPS over 300. It seems like he homers every night now. He is, he's oddly, I want to say quietly. It's sometimes it feels kind of quietly for a guy who won a VP last year, quietly like morphed into the player we always expected, which is basically, you know, one of the top year in and year out, like five or six hitters in baseball. All right, speaking of DHs, um, I kind of wanted to talk about Jordan Alvarez, who has been so good with Houston, and he also seems like he's a little bit underrated. I remember at the end of last year, I in the playoffs, when I tweeted something along the lines of, you know, is he a top five player or hitter? I guess the wording there is important because he's not not a great defender. And um, I got a lot of negative feedback on that. People did not like that. And I'm going to go back to that and say, yes, I, I believe he is. He is unbelievable. Never gets kind of the credit that the other guys that have been there with the Astros for such a long time have. But if you look at what he's doing, right, second in home runs behind Aaron Judge, he's hitting 70% better than league average. If you look at like weighted runs created plus or OPS plus 70%. He is second behind only Aaron Judge in hard hit rate. I'd like to ask all of you, who is third in hard hit rate? Now, I already blew this question for Matt, so he already knows the answer. Uh, but I want you all to think really hard about who would be third in hard hit rate. I will let you know before we stop talking about Jordan Alvarez. Number one, Judge. Number two, Alvarez. Number three, question mark, question mark, question mark. It's going to blow your mind. Alvarez has also dropped his strikeout rate pretty well this year. It's actually better than league average. And if you go back to when he debuted uh, just under three years ago, June 2019, and you look at the best hitters and you look at my OPS, number one, Mike Trout, sure. Number two, Juan Soto, okay. Number three, Fernando Tatis, yep. Number four, Jordan Alvarez. And we never think of him as a top five hitter. Part of the reason I wanted to talk about him is because I was looking at his baseball reference page. And they have a tool at the bottom, and I think it's more of like a a a fun tool than something I would put like serious analytical value into, you know, so like giant grain of salt here, but they do the similarity scores where they just kind of look at the the shape of a player's career through a certain age. Uh, His most similar batter in baseball history through age 24 is Willie McCovey, who is a hall of famer and was awesome. And I think he, I think Alvarez is never going to get the credit. He probably should because he's a DH and he's already got knees that are kind of iffy. And, you know, he's never going to pile up these giant war totals because he's not adding like defensive value like Mookie Betts might, right? Um, but we should pay a little more attention to like how big of a party is of, and wait for it, another good Houston Astros team. Another one. What did they win? 11 in a row? 12? He's a big part of that. Nobody wants to talk about they're good again. And he deserves a whole bunch of the credit for it. No question. He's like, I mean, he is, when I think of guys who are just tough outs, 
Like there's there's certain players who are you know great hitters, but you can pitch them. They they have holes in the strike zone that you can kind of pitch to, and you, there's kind of ways to attack them. He is a guy, especially against right-handed pitchers. He has susceptibility to lefties. I will grant you that. But when it comes to right-handers, like there's maybe no tougher out in baseball than Jordan Alvarez. And that's sort of how when I think of him, when I think of him at the plate, and I'm like, how are you going to get this guy out? Right. That's that's kind of he has that kind of aura to him, and he's in that class. And I think it's it's Juan Soto, it's Trout, it's Harper. It's a short list. All right, our third topic here. I went to a minor league baseball game yesterday, and I experienced something pretty cool, and I think Matt's actually got the numbers to back this up. So I went to a baseball game on Coney Island here in New York. The Brooklyn Cyclones, who are the Mets minor league team, playing the Hudson Valley Renegades, who are the Yankees minor league team. I actually got to see Will Warren starting for the Yankees, who is a prospect I know a little bit about. And he wasn't actually that great yesterday, but I think he's going to be good. And as we've said on the show, I think a number of times, if you ever get the chance to go see a minor league baseball game on Coney Island, please, please take advantage of it. It's just, it's on the beach. It's right by all the rides. It's super fun and cool. But I didn't realize until I got there um, that I was going to be seeing something a little bit different. I, I don't think I had attended a game before that was using the pitch clock, you know, that we've talked about a lot. And it kind of hit me like near the end of the top of the first, like, wow, like this, yeah, this game's blown along. Is I don't know who this pitcher for the Mets is or, you know, the Cyclones. Um, is this minor league Mark Burley, you know? And then I looked behind the batter and I saw the pitch clock and it was counting down. And when I started paying attention to it, I realized like, wait a minute, the guy's getting the ball, it's getting set. He's throwing pitches like, this is great. Like, it was a noticeable difference. I didn't have any of the numbers. I don't, didn't have any of the data. I just like was sitting there experiencing it. And I was helping to chaperone uh, a class trip for my son's class. So that meant I was with some parents who were maybe casual baseball fans or not baseball fans at all. And one of the uh, other dads, I could hear him talking about it. He's like, wow, this game, this is great. This game's zipping along. There's a lot of action. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, this is wonderful. And before I let Matt jump in with the numbers here, we don't we don't do like the dedicated rant section that we used to do. But if we did, mine, which I may have used this before, there is a giant difference between pace of game and time of game. I care a lot less about how long the game is. I care a lot more about how quickly the action happens. And that's what I was noticing. Because like I was there with 26-year-olds. We did not stay for the whole game. But what we were there for, like it was moving, it was action, it was great. Like I, I'm so happy I got to see it in person. I'll, I'll give some data of like how it's been going so far in a minute. Um, but before I get to, just so people who don't know, here's how it works basically. So with, with no runners on base, it's a 14 second pitch clock. With runners on base in the minors right now, currently as being used in the minors right now, 14 with no one on base, 18 with a runner on base, 19 at AAA. So every level gets 18 except for AAA, which is. 19 seconds. You get two step-offs or pickoffs for pitchers per batter and one timeout per plate appearance per batter. If you violate that, it's an automatic strike for the batter or an automatic ball for the pitcher, right? And also the batter has to be set by nine seconds on the clock. So it's really like it 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 moves the game along. Like it's a, it's a, you can watch it on MLB. If you if you can't get to a game, you can, you know, we're actually now showing on it on MLB.tv, we're showing free games regularly where you can watch free minor league games regularly. So you actually have an opportunity to watch this if you want. You can see it in practice. And it's as Mike said, it's it's a noticeable difference. So the first two weeks of the minor league season, there was no pitch clock. And nine inning games were lasting two hours and fifty-nine minutes on average. In the time since then, when the pitch clock went into effect on April 15th, the average game has been two hours and 35 minutes. So that's 24 minutes shorter. In 2021, the average nine-inning MILB game was three hours, with 55% of them taking three hours or more. This year, just 10% of the games have taken three hours, right? 
To your point, yeah, there is a difference between pace of game and length of game, but a lot of time those things are going to go hand in hand. And clearly, like the games are brisker and they're taking less time, right? And there's a lot of like uh, secondary impacts here. And actually, Anthony Castrovitz is working on a big piece about this for MLB.com, and so I've been talking to him a lot of it a lot, talking to him about this a lot. So I, I've got a little sense for um, how it's working in the minors because he's done some reporting around this. And so there's two things that really stand out to me, one on the field, and I want to get your take on, and then one kind of off the field, which is a factor I hadn't really considered about the impact of the pitch clock. So one of the interesting things, I guess, which shouldn't be surprising, is that stolen base attempts are way up, which I think is like a secondary thing that people would see as good because I think fans in general like stolen bases. In 2019, the average there was... 2.1 stolen base attempts per game in the minors, and it's up to 2.9% this year. And the the success rate has gone up almost 10 percentage points from 70% to 78%. So I think that's a net good. I think there's going to be some like trickiness to sort of how it manifests itself goes going on, because some of that is how teams play the clock. Runners use the clock to try and get an advantage and pitchers use it. So it's a different type of cat and mouse game. Did you see any of that cat and mouse game when you were at the game or were you too distracted by six-year-olds? Again, 26-year-olds. So I was not watching that that closely. Uh, there was there was a um, a good stolen base that we saw. I think what happened was um, it, it ended up being a 5-4 game, but it was scoreless through like the first uh, five innings. And then we had to go get the kids back to school. So I didn't see a ton of runners on base while we were there. But I think that's interesting because what you're going to get into is a big question about, you know, who who are these rules for? Like, it's great for the fans. And I think the pitchers will be annoyed because they don't want more stolen bases, which I get it. Like their job is to, you know, get outs and get paid and help their team and all that. Um, but that's sort of where it's going to get interesting because the goals for the players and for the entertainment value of the fans might be slightly different here. Totally. And then that's why I kind of want to get to the one off-field thing that Castorin's told me about that I thought was really interesting that a couple of players said to him, and which I think ultimately could be like a something that might actually sell some players on this, is that he had a few players say to him, like, it's been so good for like my body and my recovery. He's, they're like, I'm basically spending anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes less at the ballpark every night. Like I'm getting in bed, instead of getting in bed after midnight, I'm getting in bed at 1130. It's like over a course of a season, the grind of a season, that really adds up. And like, I feel better. Like I I like the way I feel more because I'm just, there's like less of just like this extra time dragging out. And I thought that was interesting. And it was not something I had really, I'd really thought about as a, a factor with the pitch clock. And I thought that was something that players would find compelling. That is interesting. I, I had not heard that either. Do you know off the top of your head who told him that? I don't mean names. I mean position players or pitchers. I cannot recall. I think it was a position player, but I can't recall. Yeah. So I think that's going to be the thing, right? Is there have been some studies that show a pitch clock might potentially raise some injury risk for pitchers because they don't have the recovery time. Obviously, we'll have to see how that plays out. But it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that kind of goes hand in hand with what you just said, which I hadn't considered. It's a really interesting thought. And, and then I guess I just wonder if it's just going to be position players love it and pitchers don't. <laughs> and then we'll go from there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll take a break. Uh, Matt and I each have some guys that we want to talk about more on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrio and Matt Myers. I always love talking about the guys you should know about more. And my guy is a starting pitcher for the Miami Marlins. And I kind of preface it like that because when you think about the biggest names who are starting pitchers in the Miami Marlins, you might think about Trevor Rogers, who had a fantastic rookie year last year. Uh, Sandy Alcantara, who's been a really good starting pitcher. Sixto Sanchez, who's been injured, but is obviously like a highly touted prospect. And I still haven't gotten to the guy I actually want to talk about yet. Pablo Lopez, who's been unbelievable. Pablo Lopez has a 157 ERA. That is currently the third best in the majors. That's eight earned runs in eight games started. Now, 157 ERA sounds good. You look at the underlying metrics, they simultaneously don't back that up fully, but are also still excellent. A 265 expected ERA, that's the StatCast number, a 229 FIP. They're still very, very, very good. And what I like about him, he doesn't even throw that hard. 92.9 miles an hour on his four seam. That's down from 94 last year. I think you've already got a pretty decent idea of what kind of pitcher he is. He's got a great changeup. He's using it more and more and more each year, more than one third of the time now. And it's a really interesting pitch. If you look at the pitch movement numbers, it has three inches above average movement, both down and to the side. This thing moves a lot. And as he's used it more, he's gotten better and better. He came up in 2018. First two years, he had a 476 ERA. Uh, you know, not that great. Over the last three seasons, a 288 ERA. So it's not like an out of nowhere pop up guy. This is a guy who's been pretty good for the last couple of years, and he's really blossoming into something resembling an ace. And so when I thought about him, I'm like, oh, I don't really remember how they got him. I assume, you know, he was drafted, an international free agent. Matt, if you remember this trade, then you are a better baseball fan than I am. Lopez was signed by the Seattle Mariners, and in July of 2017, he was traded to Miami with Brian Hernandez, Brandon Miller, and Lucas Schiraldi, three guys who never made the bigs, for David Phelps. Now, Phelps is still kicking around. He's on the Blue Jays. He threw all of eight and two-thirds innings for Seattle and then got Tommy John the next spring. That is quite a nice deal for Miami. We talk a lot about how good their starting pitching is. I don't think we talk about Lopez enough. We talk about the other guys. He's been the best out of any of them so far. He's been sort of one of these like guys that's been lurking as a possible kind of sleeper for a while now. And it's it's really nice to see him really putting it all together. The one thing with Lopez for his career, he has a tendency, and I was talking to our, our Marlins beat reporter, Christina Danicola, about him recently. As good as he's been, he's had a tendency to really fade in the second half. I just want to say, I'm very curious to see this. So, like, for example, I'm looking at um last year, 2021, first half, he had a 303 ERA. 540 in the second half. Um, in 2019, I'm throwing out 2020 because it's not a you know it's not a comparable season. He had a 4.23 RA in the first half, 7.01 in the second half. So like, there's definitely been some I don't know if endurance issues is the right word, but like he has not been able to maintain like this above average performance or an elite performance for even for that matter over the course of a season. So that's kind of what I'm be watching closely with Lopez to see if this is the year where he can really kind of like put it together for an extended period. He's just 26 years old. So we could be looking at an emerging ace who's really putting it together right now. Yes, I forgot, by the way, to mention also Jesus Lizardo in the litany of famous Marlins pitchers who's injured as well. And then I guess the next question is, if he's not signed, will they trade him for the bat that they still desperately, desperately need? Matt, who's your guy? Is it for a second straight week, someone talking about Vinny Pasquantino? <laughs> well, you know, you just talked about the the Mariners getting kind of fleeced in a trade. Let's talk about the Mariners doing well in a trade. And I want to talk about 
Ty France, first baseman for the Mariners, who is kind of just like evolved into this really reliable, very good above average hitter who like doesn't have a profile that's really common in the game today at all as sort of like a right, right first baseman who is more of a hitter for average than a hitter for power. You don't really see a lot of those guys anymore, but he's like not only doing it, he's been doing it pretty consistently well for a while now. After going three for five on Wednesday night with his sixth homer uh, against the Blue Jays, he is now hitting 325, 398, 477. That's good for a 162 OPS plus. What stands out to me about him is that like the one area where he's really improved, he's been incredibly consistent across the board. The one area where he's really improved is his strikeout rate. He was striking out 24% of the time in 2019, his first season. Last year, it was 16%. This year, it's less than 10%. And you watch his at-bats, and like he's a really tough out. You know, he went to San Diego State. He was coached by Tony Gwynn. Maybe that's like, you know, where he got some of it from. His his manager, Scott Service, had a quote last year to The Athletic. He said he keeps his barrel through the zone on plane for a long time. So his timing does not have to be perfect. A lot of players struggle at our level because of the range of the high-end velocity versus the breaking balls and the changes and the things they see. He can handle multiple pitches with different speeds. He doesn't have to be perfect with his timing. It would allow good hitters to be consistent. And like, as I said, you watch him. He's just really hard to get the ball by him. He he fouls off a lot of pitches. And what's funny, I was looking up his career stats. His career stats are like insanely consistent, even going back to college. Like it's almost like he's been able to maintain the same performance. His junior year of college, his draft year, he hit 336, 428, 470, right? His career line in the minors, 294, 389, 470, exactly the same number as his slugging percentage his junior year of college. This year he is slugging 477 in the major leagues. It's kind of amazing that he's basically been this exact type of hitter. As I mentioned, he was the 34th round pick originally of the Padres. You know, they went in their own backyard, drafted the San Diego State kid. And then he was traded in 2020, the trade deadline in the pandemic shortened season. He was traded by the Padres in one of these like crazy Mariners. You know, you get Jerry Depoto and AJ Preller together, trades, crazy trades happen. He was traded by the Padres with Andres Munoz, Luis Torrens, and Taylor Trammell to the Mariners for Austin Adams, Dan Altavilla, and Austin Nola. I I'm not even sure who won the trade. I think the Mariners might have won the trade because I think France is probably the best player. So anyway, oh, I'm, a, I'm a big Munoz. Awesome. And Munoz. Oh, Andres Munoz. And Munoz. There's 100. Awesome. Munoz is impossible to hit. So uh, I'm a big Thai France guy. No, I'm with you. Um, he's been so good that they have basically forgotten about Evan White, who was supposed to be their first baseman of the future there. I think they signed him to one of those uh, like pretty instant long-term deals, and then he didn't hit. And now I believe he got hurt. And the Mariners have had a really weird season. Like, I don't know. I, I think we talked about this. I was not as super into them as a lot of people seemed, and they've just been really up and down. They are 17 and 21 right now. But Ty France has been awesome. And I, I really like the way you put it, that he's been consistently good. Like pretty much everything he's done since he got traded has been fantastic. So I'm with you on this one. I was just trying to look up, by the way, um, as we were talking here, so the Yankees are playing the Orioles. And we talked about Stanton hitting one off the fence. Uh, Robinson Torino just crushed one way over the fence. And it would have been a home run in 30 of 30 parks, including any configuration of Baltimore that you can think of. So John Carlos Stanton, not powerful enough for Camden Yards. <laughs> Robinson Torino, powerful enough. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.